So welcome everyone to our next installment. Uh, thanks Nat, who I have with me again today for uh, asking me about the research group. A bit strange to talk about yourself for, for so long, but I guess that comes with the territory somewhat. This, this week we want to look at professional practice and rurality. And this is a sort of end point from some of our earlier podcasts. And the intention isn't really just to talk about that as an issue because we've been talking about the issue of practice and rurality throughout all the podcasts. Every one of them has had an element of how do we do this in our context, be it social work, be it education, be it rural health. So really, the whole podcast series has been about professional practice. We're going to focus here on a couple of specifics that relate to some of the work that we've been doing in the research group. And these have both been bits of work led by Natalie, who I have with me. Natalie, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Phil. Uh, the, the two things that I want to particularly look at um, and around professional practice are the work on the professions and the work on distance education. But just to put it in context, professional practice work has had a lot to do with the need to contextualise what we do in the places that we do it and understand the communities and needs that they have. We saw that with the health work with uh, Professor Lincoln. We saw that in Aiden Pickley talking about understanding communities. We saw it with Mike talking about the challenges of rural places. And we saw it with Professor Static talking about um, service provision and Professor Chenoweth talking about um, um, community services, etc. Everything came down to understanding communities. Now, in these podcasts, we've talked with, with health and community workers. Nat, you've been leading some work for us on the professions. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what that work has involved? Uh, yes. Yeah. So, um, initially, it started as um, when we were looking at education, just seeing, revisiting your work from 2004 about what's happening in the staffing of rural schools. Um, and we started to, thinking more broadly, we were noticing uh, a lot of similarities uh, from other other professions in um, rural communities that face very similar issues and challenges. So um, in this project, we are particularly looking at um, a comparison of health and education. Um, and what we've really noticed is that if you take any of the education literature and uh, change it to the, the word education to health, you've pretty much got the same things happening. Um, so we have two, two uh, professional fields in um, rural communities um, who are facing similar issues. And um, so we're having a look at what's going on there and uh, what can we uh, better do to support uh, practitioners in rural communities. That's, um, that's quite stark, wasn't it? That, that connection between health and education. Like literally, you can just replace a word and get the, get the same paper. Uh, yes, yeah. so we've literally had the same kind of challenges, um, but also the same sort of approaches to working through those challenges. So um, preparing practitioners for rural communities, um, that place matters, that rural communities uh, have a, are a different context to uh, metropolitan locations, um, that, you know, relationships matter a lot more. And, um, yeah, and so and that's an important part of preparing for work in those communities um, and the, and those who aren't prepared for that are often the ones that are struggling and experiencing a lot of the difficulties. So this work we've been doing with uh, with colleagues doing uh, doing health work at the Rural Health Centre at the University of Tasmania 
how did they undertake their side of this bit of work? Uh, so in terms of the methodology? Yep. Yep. So it was a uh, systematic review of the literature from uh, the last, ooh, since 2000. Um, and, oh gosh, there was a lot of articles. Sorry, I can't remember off the top of my head the number, but a significant amount of articles. And most of them focused around, um, well, firstly, the issues that uh, rural uh, health practitioners face. So, um, you know, the, the challenges of A, getting staff, but also keeping staff and the, the reasons around that. So um, understanding the professional context, but also um, professional development and um, opportunities such as that. Um, and then also uh, preparing our practitioners for rural locations. And um, so from that, we also did the same in education. Um, and again, we came up with very similar uh, findings. So I think you've already sort of talked about the education side um, or had some of the literature in your week's readings. Um, so I don't know if you want me to go into that in any great detail. No, no, that's all right. We've, um, we've talked a bit about the staffing challenges. Yep. The key issue, as you identified there, were around um, preparation, training, knowing communities, professional yep. development, and, yep. uh, and leadership came up in education but wasn't yes. too strong yep. in health but was an emerging issue in health. Yes, yeah. Um, and I guess in terms of the key differences, it was, as you say, leadership in education came up as shaping the uh, edu education. Um, but in terms of rural health, they have uh, one particular difference in their approach in that they have um, uh, preparation for, in, in terms of telehealth, is a recognised uh, del delivery method if you have to work in rural areas. Um, and also they're starting to recognise that being a rural GP requires um, a different training pathway so that um, you know, you're prepared for, you, you'll see more as a rural GP perhaps than what you would in a, um, in a metropolitan location. And um, you need to be prepared for the specifics of that. So that's probably one big difference is, whereas in health, they're heading towards increasing the preparation for rural communities. Whereas I think in education, we seem to be Moving away from that, just looking at some of our um, the the courses that are available in pre-service teacher preparation, there isn't very much at all around um, supporting students who would like to go and work in rural areas. Um, we are, we have some programs like the uh, Beyond the Line, or where you um, can go out in addition to your pracs um, and spend about a week in a rural location. And then some universities, maybe well, I could count them all on my hand, I guess do actually offer opportunities for um, specific units that uh, prepare you to go out and, and teach rurally and um, do a rural placement. Um, so I feel like we're sort of heading in opposite directions. That's one of the interesting differences. And that's, a, that's an interesting outcome, isn't it? Heading in opposite mm. directions, even though they're both talked about as being crucial. One is really mm. focusing on training for that specific context as part of the the, the work that is done in terms of preparation and ongoing learning, whereas the other is very much that context doesn't matter. It's about a standardised form of being seems to be the dominant mm. thing. Yeah. And it sort of makes you wonder why, um, because we're equally uh, regulated bodies and, you know, health, health is equally as regulated as education and you've got to register and go through very similar processes. Um, so why, why the recognition of difference in one area versus the other? 
And you've um, you mentioned there that looking at the courses, and that's one thing you you've done uh, for us is have a look at all the all the courses offered around Australia for preparing teachers. And yep. that comment that you made there was very much based on that bit of research, which we will be uh, publishing shortly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, um, and, and one of the interesting things there was there was absolutely no compulsory units on the rural. Um, I mean, there are, the, almost every university has one about teaching in, teaching the diverse needs of students. So perhaps some of them would classify that, you know, the rural comes under that. And, and usually in that section, it's Indigenous, low SES, those sort of, and, and occasionally they'll mention the rural, but um, that's about as far as it goes. Um, so, yeah, there's not a lot happening at universities at the moment um, on preparing rural teachers, which is an interesting, which is, is quite interesting given a lot of the work um, you know, by Simone White and, and others out there about rural teacher prep focuses on um, the need to, uh, you know, rural difference and students need to sort of understand that before they, you know, arrive in a rural community and totally unprepared. Which is um, which is quite quite a stark gap, isn't it? We mm. see that in the standards that govern the profession, that govern the, the development of pre-service courses. Like you mentioned there, the, the rural doesn't actually exist in any of those standards. It's not mentioned. It just comes under mm. diversity. Is uh, it seems to be the case? And then you mm. get situations like uh, in those course outlines that you um, that you were able to to source for us, it, where it talks about overcoming challenges or, or, or overcoming challenges in education or, or interrupting disadvantage and that's where you see the rural so it's always positioned in a deficit discourse in that perspective which is a bit of a bit of a problem mm, yes and and that also came out in um, one of our other projects the um, socio-cultural experiences of rural students at, students at university um, most of the students involved there um, mentioned that if the rural is mentioned in their course, it is always in a, um, a deficit manner. And um, it's a bit like, and, and some of the health students actually said, it was like, well, why would you want to go and practice rural? If, you, if you're aspiring to go and practice rural, then um, you've got a problem. <laughs> so it, it, it's not seen in, um, it's not held in high esteem which is a, um, a bit of a problem. And also, and, that, and that's also one of the aims of our work is to, sort of change the attention from the rural as being a place that people don't, you know, they, they don't want to go to valuing it as, um, valuing it highly as a um, profession and, um, and requiring skill sets that are, um, you know, valuable and important and in a positive, that have a positive effect to the students and the communities that they're in. So, so this might be a good time then to transition to the distance education work. And one of the, the ironies of this uh, pandemic situation that we're in has been distance, distance education. Whereas people are, I see every time on Twitter or the news or on, on, on the online papers, people are saying this is really impossible and we, we can't do this and we can't learn this way and kids can't learn at home. But mm. this seems quite bizarre given that a lot of the kids in country areas study this way. Well, that's it. Um, for the last hundred or so years in Australia, we've had either correspondence schools, school of the air, and now distance education centres, and um, and access networks. And they all rely on, um, you know, the the student and the teacher are not in the same location. Um, they're either at home or at a different school. Um, and these students have, you know, for the last hundred years, that 
they've done this without question. Um, and if they raise an issue, um, you know, it's, it's often comes back to, well, this is the only way we can provide access. Um, and that then dominates the discussion. Um, but, you know, with everybody now raising issue, we have to sort of ask, well, you know, if it's not good enough for everyone, why has it been good enough for our rural students? Um, and then, but, but flipping that to be more positive, um, it's actually quite, an, and in rural schools are known to be, uh, you know, disadvantaged and seen as, you know, quite a negative light. But when you look at the things that we've been doing in distance education schools and access network schools, it's really quite innovative. And, um, you know, they're at the forefront of technological developments and um, they're doing great things with their students. And um, it, it's not always easy, but the teachers and the students and the families involved put in a lot of effort and they make it work. And um, yeah, and, and they have great results. So for those that aren't familiar, the access networks are groups of schools um, we're using a language here that's familiar to New South Wales, I guess, but there's uh, similar systems through Queensland, and Western Australia, South Australia, um, where schools work together. So the math teacher might be in one school and the science teacher in another, and they co-timetable and then beam lessons. And what happens is the teacher delivers maybe half of those using video technology, and the other half the students have a learning management system where they learn. Uh, when Natalie and I were out recently in uh, Western New South Wales, we know a couple of schools we were in, the students in year 11 and 12 have no teacher who teaches them their year 12 subjects physically in the same school as them, but they go to school to access the technology and to have a school environment in which they then do their studies. So it's an important part of the identity right here. And it's been going since the 90s, since um, the internet emerged. And it is probably world leading in terms of its approach to providing students a broader range of curriculum that doesn't involve them leaving and isn't just sending them a bunch of stuff to read. They actually do have that interaction with the teacher online for half their lessons and then once or twice a term uh, getting together. Then there's also the isolated kids who do school of the air, who it's primarily by video technology nowadays and, uh, and online material rather than just um, the old fashioned reading bricks. Natalie, you, you looked at particularly in your earlier research um, studies, uh, even younger kids. Uh, yeah, so, um, you know, obviously if you live on an isolated property, you, you're not, <laughs> well, you can't send your child away to boarding school in, um, you know, when they start school in kindergarten and nor should you have to. Um, and that's where distance education comes in. And, um, and one of the things that I advocate for is these parents, um, they're responsible essentially for teaching their children the very basics of how to read, how to write. And yes, they have input from a teacher, but essentially it's the parent that's with them 24 um, seven and for the school day. Um, and, you know, to, to be able to do that is um, that's fantastic. Um, and it also, it's, it's a great way of learning. Um, but it also, um, one of the things that a lot of people are saying at the moment is that, uh, oh, I can't teach my child from home, it's too hard, it's this, it's that. Well, if you can teach your child the basics of life, of how to read, of how to write, then you can support your child's learning through the higher years of schooling. Um, and one of the really interesting things to come out of that work was that uh, the teachers would often send the students um, various activities to do and outline them to the parent. But then the, uh, the parents would find that sometimes their students struggled with them. So they would uh, find a new way to do it. So they didn't, they didn't interpret school as always being from 9am to 3pm inside their lounge room or wherever else they'd set up school to be. 
um, if they were out working on the farm, they would, um, you know, teach their children some of the concepts out doing the farm work. Um, so one child, they talked about how they had to do an activity to teach their child to read and um, or how to write, so how to do maths, sorry. Um, and they were saying, well, you know, we did that on the weekend when we were out in the paddock and, um, you know, we, I don't need to redo what I had to do. And, um, yeah, so it, there's an awful lot of opportunities for these students if we um, look at school as outside. Think of it differently as more than nine to three in a classroom. So it's getting beyond this um, increasing professionalisation of knowledge in schools and institutional schooling to saying education is, is a broader community phenomena and appropriately structured and planned. Everyone can take part and, uh, and facilitate it in a range of ways. Yeah, that's it. It does um, us, it, it sort of acknowledges what is valued in schooling and um, what could be valued in schooling and, um, and then the opportunities that that are there when you do look pink outside the box um, and it certainly has worked fine for all these these students that have been doing it and in fact one of the issues the, the parents noted is when that they did try to force their children to do say nine to three schooling um, you know for e either via video conferencing or whatever else is involved they um, they actually struggled because they wanted to be more active they wanted to um, you know be outside and engage with the environment and and the things that they knew um, so yeah, I guess it goes back to a bit of the place-based learning stuff that we we're talking about previously. So it brings back that notion of, um, of education being something that's built on local experiences and knowledges, but also that idea that rural communities have been leading in this area for a long time. And it's a particular form of practice, both in terms of the access networks and structure and learning. So it's not just providing content like teachers were forced into recently without that training, but this is designed that way. But interestingly, even though it's so dominant for so many parts of the state, there's no preparation in it uh, for no, teachers well that, at, at school. That, yeah, that's it. It's, um, it's been interesting because at the moment, obviously, all the teachers have been, or almost all the teachers have been forced into the distance learning. And it's a bit of a, oh, it's a bit of a shock because no one's prepared for it and, and all that. But if you were, um, you know, to go and join a rural, you know, first year out and you went and joined a rural school, chances are you would have to do this on your first day without you know, any preparation and um, which is, and it's an interesting, um, you know, it, 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 given that what 30% of our schools are rural or thereabouts, um, that's an awful lot of teachers who will have to perhaps use this method of teaching and yet there's no uh, room for preparation in their under their, their degree. Um, and I think part of that is the, the, the confusion or uh, of, um, Technology, teaching with technology is sort of integrated throughout all the standards and assumed that you'll do that in your degree. But it's very different when you're, you're integrating technology in a classroom um, of 20 kids in front of you, getting the children to use technology or whatever, than it actually is to having to teach a class over a, uh, a video conference, for example. And that was something we found out when we recently had to uh, help out with the submission to get our kids doing getting their prac. Um, online and the response, uh, we won't mention any particular authorities, but the idea that, well, this is untemporary because it doesn't actually meet the standards supposedly of working and managing classrooms. So there seems to be a, a, a perhaps a bureaucratic assumption as to what actually, actually a PRAC is when, as you say, teachers go out in their first year in large parts of the state and they're teaching like this, like the next day. Yeah, um, and, and it's interesting because um, why does a classroom or class have to be, you know, inside a building with a teacher standing in front of them face to face? Like, 
Um, you know, this distance ed also caters not just for the rural students, but for a lot of the students that are um, in some way excluded from schooling. So students that are unwell and, and can't attend on a day-to-day -day basis or even students who are traveling. Um, so it's, it tends to service the students who can't actually attend a face-to-face -face school. And in some instances, these students, their needs, in order to meet their needs, you actually have to engage with them a lot more. And so the discussions around, um, you know, you, you, one of the things, crit criticisms we've heard recently is you can't build re relationships through distance education and online teaching. Well, actually distance education is built all around relationships and it wouldn't exist if you couldn't have relationships with your students um, because they just wouldn't engage. Um, and in actual fact, even though, you know, it's been a bit of a, oh, distance ed isn't meeting teaching standards or PRAC, you know, uh, PRAC requirements, well, I, you actually have a better opportunity to um, meet all these requirements and get to know your students and individualise learning than you probably would if you were, um, you know, just going into a school for a placement um, on, you know, a face-to-face -face one. Um, because this one also involves you need to know the parents and the family's environment and all sorts of different things and and the students won't all learn the lesson at the same time they'll be you know some of them will be offline some of them will be online um, so the teachers actually have quite a, um, a huge responsibility and a diverse range of skills that are not necessarily recognized and this um, brings us back to the issue of strengths but brings us back to the issue of, of health because telehealth is, is central to what happens in, in the health profession. Yeah, that's and it. It's recently got a boost by the government uh, in the uh, virus situation, but it's not. But it's an accepted part of, of what happens in health preparation. Mm. Yes, it is. Um, and perhaps we should follow, follow their example in education. Um, and one of the other interesting things is um, often in distance education, it's, it's a bit like uh, teachers and parents are always fighting to get the uh, infrastructure and support that they need for their students. Um, so, you know, the, either the internet or, um, you know, even, uh, that's just one great example. Um, but, and, and it's been quite a struggle. Whereas now when the whole, <laughs> all the country is doing distance learning, um, you know, all these resources have appeared and, um, and, and, and that's fantastic. But why is the rural constantly fighting for, for what they need to um, support their students, um, and then and if if it's if they can do it in health, then they can definitely do it in education, um, and uh, it would be great if we could follow their example. I think this is where we bring the bits of research together and sort of gives a bit of an insight into why we're taking the approach we're doing with the research group, because uh, yeah. by looking at things differently, we can highlight what's valued in education. Uh, and it doesn't seem this sort of way use, even though it's dominant for many kids. And the whole access and that narrative becomes a certain social justice narrative that access is equity, uh, even though we uh, we know from the outset that it's actually a second best option being reinforced by current events. But also then looking at other professions gives us opportunities to see, well, if, uh, if health can do things by telehealth and we're talking about people's lives, perhaps we can do the same thing in education. So uh, it brings things full circle, I think. And thank you for your work in leading some of these research projects in the space, Natalie. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. Um, I think that might uh, do us for, for this instalment. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, and Phil. we'll be back uh, in next another instalment shortly. <laughs>